From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. This next story can have some details that uh, don't sit well with a lot of people and they can be very disturbing. But there is a positive move here in that South Korea's National Assembly has voted through a ban on the dog meat industry. This is what many animal campaigners are calling history in the making and saying they are overjoyed that this vote has taken place. And joining me to talk a little bit more about how this all came about and what this means Moving forward is Eva Demianovich, Senior Campaign Manager with Humane Society International Canada. Eva, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, my pleasure. Can you go back a little bit and talk about this industry? Some of the numbers that I saw was up to one million dogs a year being factory farmed, being then killed for human consumption in South Korea. Can you talk a little bit about the industry? Uh, absolutely. So one million dogs would be an official number of registered uh, dog meat farms that have a permit to exist. But we know uh, that there are actually much, many more of these farms that are illegal that uh, also breed and slaughter these dogs. So we believe this number is actually uh, really higher. Uh, <clears throat> we have teams on the ground that have witnessed, you know, the um, just the frequency of having these dog meat farms and, and, and operating them in an illegal manner, uh, having myself uh, been in Korea and, and uh, you know, closing down the, these farms, I can tell that the number is probably much higher and that the conditions in which these dogs were housed were horrible. So this is really incredible to know that soon there will be an end to it. And is the the main concern, is it the conditions and, and how the dogs are treated, how the dogs are slaughtered, or is it the fact that we're talking about dogs to begin with? Well, the conditions are actually awful. So there's really real cruelty and neglect involved in this industry. Uh, because the animals are bred for this purpose, they are born in a cage and never leave this cage until the day they are slaughtered. And we've seen cages that are packed with animals, so the animals have no, no, uh, you know, way of moving. Uh, there is very little food, water, uh, for sure no fresh water for these animals. Uh, we've seen them very emaciated, just, you know, hurt, injured, sick, uh, all of those uh, all of those issues coming from the conditions in which they were housed. And we've closed down about 20 of these farms and rescued over 2,500 uh, 2, of these animals so, and cared for them afterwards because we brought them to uh, shelters across North America and, and in Europe. So our teams have cared for them and rehabilitated them and placed them into homes. So we know all the impacts that these animals uh, had from the conditions that they were housed. I know that your organization, as well as others that are opposed to this, have really been fighting to try and shut it down for several years. Uh, Going back and looking at that fight over uh, the past few years, uh, what do you think has changed? Has has the the opinion of these these dog uh, factories, uh, has that changed? Has it been because do you think people are learning more about the conditions, about the things that you just described? 
Yes, I, I think there's many factors that led to this historic moment of an actual ban. Uh, and we've seen uh, just the perception change over time. So uh, there was definitely a movement within South Korea of a new generation that uh, does not practice eating dog meat, uh, that this is a very older tradition. Uh, so we started with this you know, new generation that doesn't, doesn't consume the meat but also that lives with uh, with dogs as companion animals. Uh, more and more uh, South Koreans have uh, pets at home that are dogs. We estimate, I think, it's about 6 million dogs that live in houses. And I believe there must have been a, a change in the perception of this animal, uh, you know, making the link between the, the animal at home and what's on the plate. Uh, so there was probably a cultural change, and we've seen with time, uh, a lot of pressure from the public, uh, with demonstrations on the streets uh, asking for a change and for a ban on this industry. It's a dying industry. There's uh, less and less consumption of the dog meat. So farmers are also stuck with uh, with animals and not making many a lot of profits from from uh, the practice. Um, and uh, and ten years ago, we would have not hoped for this to actually happen uh, for a ban. But uh, moving, you know, forward ten years later, we we see that the government is on our side and actually uh, passed the ban. So it's uh, it's just incredible for us. Are there other countries that have have done that as well, where once dog meat would have been considered a delicacy, or or there was a big market for it, and and we've seen that change. Yes, so there are other countries that have banned uh, dog meat consumption or, or just uh, uh, dog, the dog meat industry. There are varying, you know, legislation and varying degrees of enforcement of this legislation. So South Korea is not the first one. Uh, we hope that it's going to lead to other countries just uh, adopting similar legislation. But what was different with South Korea is that it's the only country in the world that actually breeds dogs for uh, human consumption. Uh, in other regions of the world, what we see is uh, street dogs being catched and then slaughtered, whereas in Korea, there was actually a breeding uh, production of the, these animals. Uh, so they were bred on the farm and, and slaughtered afterwards. So uh, uh, with South Korea now in three years banning this practice, we will no longer see uh, dogs being bred for this purpose. So it's actually saving, saving lives. And you mentioned three years. So it's a, a three year phase out of this industry. And I know there will be compensation for uh, many of those uh, who were in this industry. Do, do you think that's a good outcome? Yes, I, th- I believe it's a it's a very good outcome and, and a very uh, good timeline. Uh, three years is not uh, that far away. And what we expect is that uh, many of the businesses, restaurants and dog meat farms will close way before the deadline. Uh, so we will start to see. Um, see operators uh, closing down their um, their uh, practices and just taking advantage of the fact that the government is uh, supporting uh, transitioning uh, the farmers to another livelihood. So subsidi- subsidies will be administered. That's what we believe will happen. And we've been seeing this happen for the past years with uh, our model of uh, of uh, shutting down the farms where we helped farmers transition to a different livelihood. So we know that they uh, they will probably start doing that very soon. 
And do you think that this, this, I know that when we're talking specifically about dogs, and like you mentioned, they are, for many people, companion animals. We're seeing countries where maybe they hadn't been pets as as wide as they are now. They're, they're becoming more and more playing that role. When we talk about that, and, and again, the treatment and some of the conditions that you and members of your group found the dogs in, does it also then open up or at least have other conversations on in, in scenarios where pigs, which are very smart animals, maybe are treated poorly before they are slaughtered or or some types uh, of, of sea life as well. Does it lend or lead then to those conversations as well? Uh, we hope so. We certainly hope so. Uh, all animals deserve uh, com- compassion uh, in our um, you know, opinion at HSI. Uh, and many of them are still facing cruelty uh, on a daily basis. So we as an organization campaign for uh, all animals who suffer in the food industry uh, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to basically fight this, this cruelty. And we campaign for a, an end to the cruelty. We encourage a global transition to more compassionate food choices, you know, uh, uh, such as eating more plant-based. So we do hope that it's going to, uh, you know, just uh, make people think about uh, what they eat and the conditions in which these animals are are uh, raised. And one other question about this: I know that there are penalties that are going to come in as well as these these changes are phased in during the next three years. Uh, penalties of fines and uh, and other things. Do you think that that is enough of a deterrent that this will be effective? This will actually shut down this industry. Uh, absolutely. We believe it's going to be enforced. Uh, South Korea is a modern country that, you know, uh, with uh, law-obeying citizens, so we don't expect there's going to be a black market for uh, uh, for this industry. We really uh, hope that it's going to be enough to pass the legislation. And with the fact that the government is uh, working with the farmers, with a transition plan, with subsidies and, and incentives to move to a different livelihood, we hope that the majority will just take the advantage of what that represents and shut down by the deadline and not continue an illegal practice afterwards. Uh, we just don't expect it to be profitable for them because it's not going to be, they won't be able to sell it in restaurants or anywhere. So we don't see what kind of profit they will be able to make. And uh, how are you feeling, uh, given, uh, again, that this has been so many years in the making, uh, this historic vote has taken place? Uh, how are you feeling now that it's all kind of sinking in? Uh, we are feeling a lot of emotions uh, in our office. There are many of us have traveled to South Korea many, many times in the past uh, 10 years to uh, witness these, uh, you know, uh, this, this suffering firsthand. We also currently have, our team has about 40 dogs rescued from the dog meat trade uh, that are at our uh, shelter. So we, on a daily basis, interact with these amazing animals. Uh, so for us, it's just uh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, we, uh, we, we are still pinching ourselves that it's actually happening. Uh, but I would say, you know, it's... Uh, it's a news that all of our offices across the world, because it was a monumental uh, campaign that was global, uh, with many offices from different countries working together. So uh, it's uh, many, many people that are celebrating right now. Eva, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on this. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. 
Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, it has been about five years since cannabis became legal. Depending on where you are, you might have cannabis stores, it seems, on every corner, or maybe not. But we wanted to take a look and see how the industry is doing. And Mike Babbins is joining us once again. He is the owner of Evergreen Cannabis. That is on West 4th Avenue in Kitsilano. Mike, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. Always happy to talk to you. Well, I know we talked to you when things were just getting going. I think more more recently we talked about uh, taking down the opaque covering on the windows. Uh, How would you sum things up uh, where we are five years in? I I don't even know where to start. It's it's been a whirlwind. Uh, There's a lot of good. There's a few things that we could work on, but you know, it's up, up, up. That's that's all you could do in this industry, right? I, well, that's a positive way. That's a, a great way of looking at it. Uh, let's start then. Are there things that have unfolded as far as legal sales and going from when it was kind of the Wild West, there were stores that even though they had business licenses, they didn't actually, it wasn't actually legal to be operating. Uh, that got worked out. How has it been kind of uh, the red tape side of things and running a cannabis business? Uh, I, I mean, it's it's like any other business. There's a there's a lot of paperwork to do. You have to deal with the government all the time. That darn government taking their cash. Uh, I think our biggest issue right now, um, I it's not a thing with illegal stores anymore. People buy from where they want to buy. My biggest problem along those lines right now is there's this company advertising on Facebook, calling themselves Evergreen CBD, scamming people with illegal gummies. And they call us to complain after because they think it's us. And every time I report it to Facebook, they say that they aren't breaking any of the rules. Even though they're breaking the law, they're using my name. And I'm not even allowed to have a Facebook account uh, for a cannabis store. So that's where we're at now, dealing with bots who don't want to help me. Hmm. And is that something that, I mean, that's awful that that's happening to you. But is that something, have you heard that in that other businesses are being targeted? Or that's something that's kind of a common occurrence? I think it's just because we have a name that works really well for it, but I don't know what your social media feed is like, but all I see is is advertising for, I've seen mushrooms being advertised on Facebook. So one thing I want to warn anyone listening to is do not buy any cannabis products off of Facebook. It's not legal. It's random sketchy sites. You could lose your money and there's nothing I could do to help you when that happens. So please be really careful when you, when an ad pops up on, online. Well, wasn't that kind of the whole point or, or one of the points of legalization and having the business licenses and having the stores like yours in that people wouldn't have to purchase from those types of vendors? That's what I thought, but apparently they're still out there. And apparently, you know, the, the, the big companies are working very hard to make sure we can't read news on their website, but they don't care about other things. Hmm. How big of an issue is it, do you think, then, as far as the illegal ads or the bots taking business away from you? I, I wouldn't say in any way it's taking business away from me. That, that's not my concern at all. Hmm. Uh, I don't think anyone who would, who would fall for that is someone who'd walk into a store and ask questions. My concern in that is that people are getting ripped off and they're getting dangerous products. Right. That, that's a big deal. That's that, you know, at one point they were saying David Suzuki is advertising these. I don't think David Suzuki, you know, was really concerned about, you know, losing any money over that. But, you know, his face is being used for a, a dangerous product and he's someone people trust. Right. 
Mm, yeah, no, no, and I, I remember kind of hearing uh, hearing about that in that particular case. Uh, you you raise an interesting point, though. Do you think that the way it rolled out and the rules that still govern and are uh, dealing with cannabis, uh, it is different? And not to say it's it's in the even in the same family as say alcohol, but alcohol. There are advertisements on this radio station on on other radio stations. Uh, they they can add, they can put them out there. Would it be different? Do you think if cannabis could also be advertised? publicly the way alcohol retailers do or or online gambling casinos right have you tried watching a hockey game recently (laughs) you know it's a little outrageous what what they get away with but we aren't allowed to even go on social media and dispel myths i think that's a problem i I personally you know don't want cannabis to be advertised the way alcohol is because it's ridiculous i'd prefer alcohol were scaled back and i'd really prefer gambling were scaled back but there has to be some Somewhere in the middle, either we have to be on the same playing ground or it all has to come back because, again, like people could post these illegal ads on Facebook. People could say whatever they want on Twitter or XYZ, whatever it's called these days. And we can't go and rebuke that because of the marketing restrictions against us. So the lies get out there and there's no one to to tell the truth. Why is it? Remind me why it is that cannabis, which is now and has been for several years now a legal product, why can't you advertise? I wish you could answer that question, Jill, because, you know, I mean, we have an elementary school a few blocks from here, and I don't think any of the parents are worried about their eight-year-old kids coming in buying cannabis from us. I, I don't think that's a huge concern. But... It doesn't seem to be a concern that I can't watch a hockey game with my kid without worrying about him real being normalized towards gambling. Right, and it, and is it? But is it because cannabis falls under a different ministry or a different a different set of rules? It's clearly not in the same the same category as, uh, like you say, gambling or even alcohol. Yeah, and and I don't see why it would be different. I guess it's because it was illegal for so long, and I guess it's because we're the first, you know, G twenty nation to actually legalize it and they wanted to make sure they did mistakes along the way but as we're talking about now we're five years in i don't think anybody's hair has turned purple i don't think kids are running rampant in the streets i think if anything uh, they said that teenage cannabis use has gone down with legalization because it's not as exciting for them anymore so i i don't understand why we're treated so differently you know i'm on that, everyone in the cannabis industry, we have to pay additional fees at the bank each year because we're still considered a high-risk industry and a high-risk store. So I have to pay an extra $300 a month every single month just because the bank has to monitor every single thing I do, even though we're so highly regulated, it would be really hard for me to do anything inappropriate. Hmm. Uh, and who knows if that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, I mentioned, Mike, that we did talk to you, I think, just before the rule was changed as far as uh, you not needing to have that opaque covering on the windows uh, at the front of your store. Did that make a big difference? Well, we have to clean the floors a lot more now because you could see in. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, again, it, no one lost their minds. I think, if anything, it's, it were a lot safer feeling because you could see what's going on. And once again, uh, you know, when we first started out, we had a little thing where we waved to everyone and say, walk by. Now the windows are open, we could wave again. And you could see how pretty and calm our store is when you walk by. So I think it's a very good thing. And nothing horrible has happened because somebody might peer in through the window and see the uh, product or see something product adjacent on the shelf. 
if that did happen, they must have gone so crazy that I didn't hear about it. All right. So it's been uh, OK in that sense. I know there was uh, there, there have been some uh, conversations being had about price and that perhaps the product that you sell that other cannabis uh, retailers sell. It's not as high as maybe what was anticipated. Is that a fair comment? I think that, well, I, this all started, uh, and our conversation is, is kind of going on because there were some numbers released really this week from the province about how high their sales are and how much more cannabis is being sold. I think uh, if I, I can't speak for every store, but I could use my store as an example. Uh, we are in unofficially a recession, but let's face it, none of us have a lot to spend right now. People's habits, consumption habits don't really change, especially when they're stressed, but their financial habits do. So the same person who used to come in every few days and buy three and a half grams for about $30 now will come in once a week and buy a full 28 gram bag instead in bulk. And our 28 gram bag started $80. Our our most high end ones are still $145. So if you're spending $30 $30 a time, then you're spending about $240 a week. Now you're spending 80 to 140 So more cannabis is being sold, but there's less money coming into our pockets. There's less money growing into the growers' pockets, which is the most important things. And But technically, there's more of it being sold and more money coming into the province. Hmm. And, and, and because people are buying in more bulk or more, more bulk quantities? Yeah, pretty, exactly. It's you know, it saves them a lot of money, but they still get the same amount. Uh, there's also the other people who buy the pre-rolled joints. So, you know, they'll buy just one or two joints a day. So they're going to spend $10, $15 again instead of that $30. Huh, interesting. What about the, the quality of the product? Because I, I remember as well when, when this was all unfolding, uh, there were some concerns of people saying, well, uh, maybe the, the government issued or the government regulated product isn't going to be as good as what I'm used to or, or what I've been getting all, all along. How has the, the, the quality been? It took a while. It took a while to get away from the big growers and to get back to the small ones. Right now, it's as good or better as it was before legalization in our store anyways, because, you know, it, it's kind of like there's, there's the big beer companies. I hate equating to alcohol, but it's the easiest way to do it. So there's the big beer companies and then there's your local craft brewery. And most of the stores do work with the big companies. Uh, they, they have little deals between them to carry their product. And that stuff is acceptable. We at Evergreen, we work with all the small, small BC mom and pop growers, and so we get fresher bud. We get it delivered directly from them. You know, we have to pay more in taxes and fees, which I don't understand why we have to pay more to the government when they aren't involved as much. Um, but so most of the cannabis on my shelf right now is grown by the same people who were growing it before legalization. Hmm. And and when you talk about your customers, your clientele, uh, have you seen, or, or do you think in the past five years, has it grown from people that in the past maybe never tried cannabis, weren't interested, but now that it is uh, this legal substance and there are stores like yours, uh, storefronts and such, are more people trying it? Do you know anyone in Kitsilano who has never tried cannabis? <laughs> I don't know a lot of people in Kitsilano, but maybe not. <laughs> it is the old hippie neighborhood, so we're a bit different with that. But yes, we do see a lot of people who never tried it before who are coming in because uh, they've heard about CBD or they're 
you know, trying to reduce their alcohol intake and, and someone suggested this to them. Or there's a lot of people who said, you know, I had a bad experience back in college, but maybe you could help me try it at the proper dosage or what's right for me. So there's a lot more curiosity than there was, that's for sure. And where do you see the industry grow, uh, going now? Here we are five years in. Where do you see it going from here? I don't know, because I didn't see where I'd be five years from now. I'm just looking towards tomorrow at the most. You know, I, I'm hoping uh, that that in the province of B.C., uh, we get this tax situation figured out and things become a little more reasonable. I'm hoping we're allowed to have a bit more of a voice uh, publicly. And uh, I, I see a lot of stores uh, closing down over the next few years because a lot of people put a lot of money into it thinking that they were just going to get rich overnight. You know, I'm sure you remember everyone was talking about the new green gold rush, invest into this, invest into that. And people who didn't know anything about the industry pumped their life savings into it. And we're seeing those stores open and close. So I think we're going to see a a bit more of the madness and then everything even out and calm down. And then it's just going to be a normal there. There's a shop on my corner, just like the bakery and just like the pub and just like the pizza place. And I hope it has good pizza. (laughs) And then I suppose we have these conversations all over again, or we see this repeat uh, with things like mushrooms. I don't think so. There's a lot of talk with mushrooms, but mushrooms and cannabis are two different, uh, you know, products completely. And I don't think mushrooms are going to be legal for quite a while because, it took long enough for cannabis, and if I know nothing about cannabis and I go and I smoke too big a joint, I'm going to go to sleep. If I take too many mushrooms, I, I could do something really stupid. So they're going to be really, really slow and careful with, with that. And I, I don't see it happening as soon as people think. If you anyone on social media suggests to invest in their mushroom company, don't fall for that, please. <laughs> Learn from this industry and what we've seen here. Mike, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. It was great to chat with you again. Call me anytime, Jill. Well, there was an update, not really the update people were looking for when it comes to the Artemis missions. We are adjusting our schedule to target Artemis II for September of 2025 and September of 2026 for Artemis III. Artemis II is seen as an important first step to permanent human presence on the moon. Astronauts will fly around the moon over the course of 10 days. Artemis III will be humanity's first return to the lunar surface in more than 50 years. That first voice you heard there was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and that report from Global News. So what does this actually mean as far as this mission and how significant is the delay? Andrew Ferreira is joining us now, Speaker's Chair with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, Vancouver Centre. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jill. When you look at this announcement and hear this announcement, how significant is it that the mission has been delayed? I mean, it's significant in the fact that, you know, you're pushing back timelines on a program that, you know, many would argue has been pushed back, some would argue, as much as a decade and a half. Um, Now, all in all, this is only a delay of about 10 months. Um, To be frank, uh, a lot of folks within the astronomy community and, you know, the amateur space community were kind of worried that this is going to happen, just with how slow uh, a lot of the progress has been uh, with NASA's their kind of their marquee rocket, which is the uh, very um, 
boringly named Space Launch System. Um, it is a, a hulk of a rocket. It's huge. It's, you know, it's a skyscraper with explosives strapped all around it. Um, this has been in development for years and years, but it is not the kind of rocket that NASA has publicly said they want to keep using. That being said, sunk cost fallacy, you know, they've doubled down and they're going to use this rocket. And I, a lot of the problems come from, you know, not only the cost to refurbish and create these rockets, um, but they actually announced uh, in the press conference that one of the key things that they noticed was actually with uh, the crew module. Now, you might remember with the Apollo missions, um, the Eagle lander was the crew module. It was the actual part of the spacecraft that would go down to the lunar surface. Um, and for the Artemis missions, this is called the Orion uh, spacecraft. Now, when it was re-entering Earth in its first test mission a couple of years ago, uh, NASA scientists and engineers found that a little bit too much of its ablative coating, so its heat shield essentially, uh, had burnt off on re-entry. Now, this heat shield is supposed to burn off. That is what it does. Uh, but the fact that it burnt off a little too much made engineers a little bit worried so they're kind of going back to the board, drawing board just a little bit to tweak it. Uh, and they also spotted some other non-critical uh, system errors, which is the entire point of this first mission, was to suss out problems uh, to make sure that Artemis 2 and 3 uh, are as safe as we can, you know, as safe as we can possibly make them. Right, which, uh, as you were explaining that as well, it makes sense. That's why you do the tests, and, and we would hate for, for something to go wrong during the actual mission. But but I, I wonder, too, or I think maybe there's more disappointment uh, because of all the attention that has been paid to a Canadian astronaut, Jeremy Hansen. Absolutely. And, I mean, the big loss here is, is the waiting, because Jeremy Hansen... Um, was lined up to become the very first ever non-American to leave near-Earth orbit, right? He was slated to be the first ever non-American human being uh, to enter deep space. Now, he's still slated to do this, um, and of course, the training will only continue. Um, but you have to imagine that this is, you know, a bit of a disappointment for himself, for his friends and family, uh, for his colleagues at the Canadian Space Agency. Um, because I don't know if I was, you know, putting myself in his shoes, which I think might be a little bit uh, big for me, uh, you know, I would be immensely, you know, disappointed. You know, every day, you know, kind of training and waiting is another day that, you know, you're not out there, you know, really making history, which is what this is all about. Um, yeah. Right. But, but and again, going back to the safety, I, I think you being on the crew or the people on the crew would be the, the most thankful that the safety flights are being taken and that everything, all of the, the fine points are being looked at. Well, absolutely. Right. At the end of the day, you know, the most important thing is that, you know, the folks who are building, um, you know, the rocket and all the instruments and safety equipment that are keeping me safe uh, are doing everything they can to keep the mission going as it is. And one thing that I do want to kind of mention here that I think is worth kind of pointing out is that as this brand new kind of wave of interest in missions to the moon accelerates, the more and more competitors are entering the field. Uh, just the other day, um, a private company uh, named Astrobotic uh, launched a private uh, moon lander to the moon. Uh, and unfortunately, that mission seems to have ended in failure. There was a, a rupture in one of the tanks, and it doesn't look like this, this uh, spacecraft is going to make it to the moon. But the fact that we can even talk about both public and private entities uh, sending payloads and eventually people to the moon, with, I think within the decades, um, really highlights that this is an exciting time to you know, really be aware and tapped into this 
kind of new 21st century uh, Apollo craze, if you will. And I imagine, too, that that's a big part of it. When we're talking about Artemis three, the subsequent mission, and this would be landing astronauts on the moon for the first time in more than 50 years. So that's been delayed until at least September of 2026. But it does seem like it's quite a mix of what you're talking about, these huge advances that we're talking about private companies doing this, but also doing something that hasn't been done for more than 50 years. And whether people are remembering the first one and excited about this one or this is the first one, there, there seems to be a lot of excitement on both sides. Absolutely. And it's interesting as well to note that NASA has kind of adopted a, a brand new posture here and that this may very well be, this Artemis mission may very well be uh, the final real NASA-led hurrah in terms of uh, spacecraft hardware. Because we've seen demonstrated, you know, not only with SpaceX, but also with companies like, you know, Launch Alliance, uh, New Zealand's um, got themselves also their own indigenous rocket that's been very successful. Um, private companies have shown that they're able to iterate and engineer faster and more efficiently uh, than the public sector. And so NASA's kind of taken a posture uh, in accepting that instead of being the hardware supplier, they might be the software supplier. They might end up only providing training, science payloads, uh, you know, the kinds of consulting duties that previously had only been for the private sector. So as we move forward, it's interesting to see how these positions have switched in that, you know, a key part of this Artemis entire mission here is actually a SpaceX lander, right? So hopefully within the decade, we'll be able to see a SpaceX, a private lander, land on the moon, dropping astronauts to the surface and, you know, hopefully some kind of funky, you know, moon buggy. Um, But that's happening, you know, towards the end of this decade, potentially. But I just like to note that it's interesting that the tables have kind of turned where the private sector is taking off literally uh, and NASA's kind of taking a backseat. It is interesting when you look at it that way. Are you surprised at all at how much or was that kind of always always anticipated when it became possible, when the private sector could be more involved? That's what we would be seeing. I think that once. And it was, it really came down to SpaceX breaking the mold. Now, SpaceX wasn't the first private company to, you know, really, you know, launch rockets and all that, but they were the first ones to do it on such a large, uh, and loud scale. Um, one thing that people have lauded SpaceX for and other companies that have followed is their complete and utter transparency, uh, when it comes to their engineering. You know, they don't hide what they're doing. They document it. They welcome, you know, journalists, enthusiasts, and amateurs to go to their launch sites and watch them put stuff together. They elaborate what they're doing, you know, with even the electrical stuff, with testing different types of, uh, uh, of heat shielding tiling, with iterating all sorts of different types of procedures. They're extremely open about that. And the fact that this has happened has captured a lot of people's imagination because now the space industry and space itself is no longer this kind of closed room where money goes in and rockets come out, uh, we can kind of see what's happening now. We can actually participate actively in cheering on rockets as they launch and then blow up and then they go, well, we'll just draw, we'll just do another one. Um, and this has been copied over and over again around the world now with tons of these small satellite and rocket launch companies uh, setting up. In fact, you know, even here in Canada, uh, nothing is completely you know, confirmed yet, but I know that out on the East Coast, uh, Maritime Launch Services is a Canadian company that hopes to, uh, in the coming years, uh, build a launch pad out, I believe, in Canso, Nova Scotia, um, to launch 
uh, to be like a provider for private launches, for satellite science payloads, all that kind of stuff. So even Canada, you know, not only are providing astronauts and, of course, the Canada arm to um, upcoming missions and current ones, uh, we're also providing a test bed uh, and a literal launch pad for private space missions as well. And you mentioned something there, too, that I think even though there was likely disappointment today, especially if you were one of the astronauts, there is something to be said, isn't there, with that kind of being along for the ride and seeing things with the technology and being able to see how the testing is going and and to see uh, the technical issues and hear about them and that people maybe it's not the the preferred outcome, but people still feel like they're part of it. And that's the thing. And that's one thing that I've, I've been really, I was actually uh, pleasantly surprised by how open and transparent NASA was with today's announcement. Um, they were very, you know, straight up about what exactly went wrong, they believe, what they want to be able to do. Uh, they also mentioned that for Artemis 3, uh, some of the support hardware is going to have to be replaced due to exhaustive testing, which I would argue is a good thing. Um, so, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the seven-year-old in me who wanted to be an astronaut um, and who read, you know, countless picture books with space and stuff uh, is, of course, extremely disappointed because I wanted to see rockets go up into the sky and, you know, I wanted to see people eventually get back to the moon. But it's not like we're going to have to wait forever here. And I think that it's, you know, inevitable. I, I tell people a lot that we live in an interesting time because these years in the 2020s and 2030s are going to be the very final years uh, of humanity being a single planet species. You know, we are going to be entering the interplanetary era uh, in the next few years. And the fact that we're all alive here uh, and able to witness, you know, these very first steps uh, is something that, I don't know, it excites me. And I hope that it excites other people as well. I think uh, there is certainly a lot, uh, a lot of people watching this and watching those other missions as well. Andrew, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.